This is a classical passage, one of the one of the most important passages in the Holy New Testament. Is what we're going to go over these three verses. Uh, classical, important, so important to know about and to do, and to make sure you keep on top of it and go over it regularly. That's why you read your Bible on a regular basis because you want to be able to uh, review the Word of God. It's important. I know I need to review. Uh, when Jesus is coming into the triumphal entry, now most of you Bible know well enough, there was a time when Jesus presented himself to the children of Israel as their Messiah. It's called the triumphant entry. And as he presented himself at the beginning of that, they, they had a colt, the foal of an ass, who never had been sat upon, and he rode that, and that was prophetic out of Zechariah. And he would, he would ride that colt into Jerusalem. Thy king cometh on a colt, the Old Testament says. And, of course, he fulfilled that to, to exactness. Jesus is coming in. People are taking palms, you know, and breaking them off and going, Hosanna in the highest. They're throwing their garments, taking their garments off, putting them on the ground before Jesus Christ as he's coming into the city. The Bible says the whole city was shaken. And, there, and the people were saying, who? Is this? What a statement. Who is this? At the birth of Jesus, the question was raised Who is this? The shepherds testified of who he was right off the bat early on. And then a year or two later, the wise men from the, from the east came to Herod and testified that. His star had appeared to them and, and led them to that area, eventually to Bethlehem. And he, they were seeking a king. And they were they were take, and they came, as you know, to the place where Jesus was born. He was probably two years old by that time. And they gave him their gifts of frankincense, myrrh, gold. Gifts fit for a king. It's interesting, the shepherds were the first ones. The shepherds. Because it was, it was the shepherds who for all these years since Moses had been sacrificing their best lambs on the altar as an atonement for their sin and other people's sins. A flawless yearling lamb had to be offered for your sin atonement. They'd been giving up their lambs, these shepherds had been giving up their lambs for all about 1,500 years. And so it's appropriate that the shepherds were the first ones to come and recognize the Lamb of God. They also got to hear the angels sing. They got not the angels to say, and then they got to hear all, all the hosts of heaven rejoice, Hosanna. And so it was big. During Jesus' childhood, he, he at 12 years old, went to Jerusalem and, and began to question the doctors, PhDs, and asked them questions. And they said, basically, who is this? Who is this kid? It was the miracles that Jesus did. They asked that same question. Even his disciples says, what manner of man is this? Or who is this? And even the winds and the waves obey his voice. You'd say the same thing. Uh, it was the at the trial of Jesus when they brought him before uh, the uh, 
Pharisees and Sadducees and lawyers and scribes. What were they doing? Who are you? Tell us who you are. Tell us who you are. Eventually during that trial, he said who he was. You're going to see me coming in glory. And they ripped their garments and said, we've heard blasphemy. He knew they would do that. It was time. His hour had come finally to give himself. When he stood before Pilate, which was a secular trial, he stood before a sacred trial, the Sanhedrin, and they condemned him to death as a blasphemer. And then he stood before a secular judge, which was Pilate, a Roman judge. And he stood before Pilate, and Pilate kept asking, who are you? Who are you? Where are you from? And he, what's amazing what he revealed to Pilate. He said, I, I'm a king, but not of this earth. If I were of this earth, my servants would fight for me. And he, he never denied he was a king. And in your heart, when you come to Christ as your Savior, who is this one that gave his life for me? And you spend the rest of your life finding out who Jesus is as you live for him, as you read the Bible, as you study. Your quest individually is to find out who is this. I, I think it'll go beyond this world. After you die, our quest for him will remain. We'll get to know further and more deeply Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Can you know him completely? I don't believe it's possible because he's God, as this passage, by the way, says. So let us read this passage and start out tonight. God, who at sundry times, that's different times and in different manners, different times, different manners, sundry times and divers manners, spake. God's always into speaking. It's of the nature of God to speak. In time past, under the fathers by the prophets, God's spoken a lot of different ways. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son, word dia there, through his son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory, express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he by when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty of God. We want to just kind of do a little short exposition of what we have up there uh, on the board. So before I do that, I want to kind of give you a familiar, many of some of you are familiar with this outline, by the way. It's the best outline I've ever seen. Outline of the book of Hebrews that we're in there. Hebrews chapter 1. The Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is a book that glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ with the idea that he's better than anything the Hebrews had experienced before that. He's better than what? Well, in chapter 1 through 2, he's better than the angels. People worship angels. Don't do it. Worship Jesus. He's better than them. He's better than the Old Testament prophets. I love Elijah and Elisha and the prophets, Isaiah and the Old Testament prophets. They're great, but nothing like Jesus. Worship him. He's better than the Old Testament priests. The priesthood, Samuel being maybe one of the best priests ever came and uh, you know go, was on the scene. And they were they, some of them guys that were honestly Aaron, you know, and, and his sons 
sacrifice, but nothing like Jesus. He's better than the Old Testament priests. This was big for Hebrews. He's better than the Old Testament covenant. That's the law, covenant of Moses. Christ is better than the law of Moses. In fact, if the law of Moses had been adequate to save people, there would have been no reason for Christ to come. That's the reasoning of the book of Hebrews. But because nobody could have been saved by those sacrifices, those sacrifices were done until Christ could come. They were done in foreshadowing of the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. That's found in John 1.29 when Jesus came down to the Jordan to be baptized of John. John looked up at Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. That's such a profound statement. It's amazing. It's so deep in theology of the Old Testament. All those lambs that had died, those innocent lambs that had died and shed their blood, were, were they, none, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. But they were, they were a foreshadowing of the one who could take away sin, the one who could substitute for you and me, the one whose blood could take away all of our sins. He could be just and justifier of him that's believing in Jesus. And that's the Lord Jesus' blood. And so we get saved by looking back on that blood. And the people of the Old Testament got saved by looking forward to the Messiah who would come because he was made clear that there was one coming to crush ahead of saint all the way in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Then we have, he's better than the Old Testament sacrifices, which I just went into. That's your, that's your first uh, nine chapters. Then the outline, the second major part of the book of Hebrews is uh, 10, 11, and 12, 13. It's sober consequences of rejection. So after you see Christ better than all that, you see if you reject Jesus, seeing he's better than the angels, and better than the prophets, and better than the priests, and better than the Old Testament covenant, better than the Old Testament sacrifices, if you reject him, beware. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. You will not find anywhere in the Bible any stronger warning about rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ than you find in chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews. You don't get stronger now. It's a sober, sober warning. Then you see in chapter 11, maybe one of the most famous chapters of all the Bible, the 11th chapter, the chapter of faith, 17 named people. Out of all the people who lived and came and went, uh, the 17 named people. And there's many, there's a few unnamed people, but most of them are named in the book that believe God by faith before the flood, after the flood, substantial faith recounted. And interesting, the sober consequences of rejection, but right after that, those who believe, whoa, what a, what a beautiful thing to those who believe. And then some subsequent discipline for the rebellion, for rebellious, I should have put there. Uh, that's the clearest place, chapter 12 is the clearest place in the whole New Testament, maybe really the whole Bible, of how God disciplines his children. Once you become a child of God, you are not in the same category as a non-believer. You're just not in the same category. You have two children. You only got one you know. But you don't treat your child and discipline your child the way you would treat Boucher's child or Chris Barrow's child. That's their child. 
You've got your child. And God, we're born into his family by his blood. And we get disciplined by our father who cares about us. Praise the Lord for that. Praise God for the discipline. By the way, you cannot, as a child, escape discipline. You can't do it. I don't care how dedicated you may want to be. You're not going to be dedicated enough not to, not to have some discipline. You need discipline. I need it. The Bible calls it chastisement. You must have chastisement. That's chapter 12. What a chapter. And then it ends the whole thing. A substantial obedience is requested. Jesus Christ, the same, verse 5, 13. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. The consistency of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he deserves our faith. It says, I think three times in that chapter, obey those that have rule over you. God set certain people in the church to try to help you and to grow you. And he said, you've got to submit to them in such a way. Laws are legitimate and honest and upright. Submit to them to help you and encourage you. You know what a pastor of a church is? He's a coach. Just like this belt here. This belt was won by these girls, but they had a coach. And they listened to their coach. And they paid attention to what their coach said. And their coach made them do things they didn't want to do. And their coach says, you got to run. I don't want to run. I feel bad. Run anyway, because when you play the game, we play a, a, a close game, you're going to need to be in shape. And they, those girls obeyed their coach. And look what they got. They won out of all those other kids, all those other teams. And that's, by the way, West Coast, East Coast. That's all the way up there for Pierce area. Like, it's amazing that we won that. To be honest with you, a little school like ours. They obeyed their coach. And, and it, honestly, there's a parallel there between the local pastor and the church. He's trying. I'm trying to make you a winner. I want you to be a winner when it's all said and done. Now, it doesn't make me perfect. It doesn't make me right all the time. But generally speaking, I'm following the book that tells me what to say and how to say it and where to say it. And that book is right for sure, no matter who says it. You follow that book, you're in good shape. So anyways, God's method, he has, he has a method there. I'm going to finish with this. His method, uh, he has a few, seven actually methods here to communicate with us. He's spoken many times and in many ways in the past to his people. At the beginning, he spoke verbally to our forefathers, Adam through Moses. But then it's when Moses came along, he, he was able to put it down in writing. He spoke through the prophets. He spoke through verbally to our forefathers, and he spoke through specific men he called prophets. He said, I, I sent my prophets rising early and sending. That's a phrase of the Old Testament. Then he, he, he wrote it down and had Moses write the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and he put it in writing for them so that they could look at it and review it. I like writing. I would rather write something to you than say something to you. Because if I write something to you, you can go over it again and again. Now, what's the problem with writing is you don't get the inflection. You don't get the tone and inflection in it. But but you can go over it, and you can you can digest it. You can meditate on it. Whereas when somebody says something verbally, you may even remember it wrong and misinterpret it. And, and the more you go over it, maybe it may be the worse it gets. But if it's in writing, you can go over it and make sure you keep the accuracy. I love the Bible. I love, I love that we have, we have the written Word of God. But according to, the, to Hebrews chapter 1, those were all good things, but we have something better than all of that. We have the greatest communication possible 
And what is that? Through his son. God has done his best witness to the world through the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't get a better witness of who God is and what he believes and what, and what he wants for you than you will through the Lord Jesus Christ by looking at him. Look, look, look under, you know, the songs written about this. The best way is the purest way. It's the most complete way. Uh, if you don't respond to God as he speaks through Jesus, there is nothing else left to say. You don't like Jesus. There's nothing else God has to say to you. That's his last witness to you, Lord Jesus Christ. And so we be, from that, we're going to go with the seven, the seven uh, what are you going to say, witnesses, if I want to put it that way, of seven expressions of who Jesus is as this uh, incarnate uh, witness for the Father who he is to mankind. The seven expressions of Christ. So here's one, the heir of all, well, we'll take the first one, the heir of all things. Here's a quote. I love this quote on that, on that first one. Something of his incarnation, which he did not possess before it and could not have possessed without it. He had equality with God as his birthright. But out of his human life, death, and resurrection came a type of sovereignty which could pertain to him only through his triumph over human sin in the flesh. That is a powerful paragraph. In other words, when the Bible says he is the only begotten, there is nothing, no, no, no one like the Lord Jesus. He became flesh. God joined with man and walked among us. As it says in, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11, and, and testified of who God was in human body. And he, he gains that. You say, can God learn? Well, he had to come. He had to do it that way. He, he was not what, that he did not know what that was before he did it. And when he, after he did it, he was changed when he goes, when he's in heaven now, he's got nail prints in his hands. He's carried something of his time on earth back to heaven with him. His equality with the Father was never disputed. He was always equal with God. You say, I don't understand it. Well, you aren't alone. Psalm 2.12 says, Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and he perish in the way, when he hath wrath has been kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. He came the first time as a harmless, bashful, timid, quiet Lamb of God. The next time you see Jesus, he's coming back as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Word of God, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's coming back to rule with a rod of iron. Uh, right now, you can talk bad about him and use his name in vain. But that's going to stop. Pretty soon, that's all going to stop. 
And nobody will be doing that. So who is Jesus? Well, he's the heir of all things. Well, secondly, it says he made whom he made the worlds. Everything to reach his exist its existence must pass through Jesus, the Son of God's thoughts. Everything. Everybody in this room, who you are. I cut myself today and I bled a little bit. And I told the boys, I said, my entire DNA, my entire makeup is in one blood cell. 46 chromosomes. It's my entire plan for everything. Color hair, unbleached black hair, uh, blue eyes, sometimes green eyes. Everything. What? That's microbiology in the nth degree. What in the world? He is the uh, maker of everything that is. Nothing came without him thinking about it. He's the creator. Colossians 1, 16, 17 is interesting because there's two Greek words for the word in. There's, there's one word, dia, which means in through, and then there's another one that's pronounced almost like in, it's in, and it it means uh, in essence. Now let me read with that thought, I'm going to point this out, Colossians chapter 1 verse 16, for by, the, the King James says by, which is a correct translation, but when you look in the Greek there, that's the word in, not dia. Either way, the word by translates them accurately. But to get a deeper understanding of that, you look in the Greek, and that's when the Greek actually does help you, enhances you. For by him were all things created. I could read that in him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by. It uses the word dia there. All things created through him and for him. And he is before all things and by, it uses in there, in him all things consist. It's a subtle difference, but it's powerful. Powerful, but subtle. All true. Everything was created by him or in him. And everything was created through him. And everything consists and maintains itself at this very moment in him. You see the trouble Jesus had when they were whipping him? You see the trouble that Jesus had when they were mocking him? You see the trouble Jesus had when they, were, when they slapped him and pulled his beard out and said, if you'd be the son of God, uh, come down from the cross? He had no trouble with that. His word would have done anything he said. He could have said, be gone, and they would have just been gone. But instead he said, Father, forgive them. I got a feeling somehow the Father was bowing up 
at the way those Roman soldiers were treating him. Because he prays the Father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Huh? Maybe he saw Michael over there begin to unsheath his sword. Because you understand, the angels understood who he was. That he's our master, he's our maker, he's our creator. Everything that's ever happened is going through him. And he's letting them treat him this way. Why? Substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. God dying for his own creation. It's called the vicarious atonement of Christ. I have a, I have a uh, quote here. It says, a house testifies that there is a builder, a dress that there is a weaver, a door that there is a carpenter. So our world, by its existence, proclaims its creator God. By the way, that's written by a rabbi. Those who, those who willfully deny Christ will have the entire universe at their trial to testify against them. The stars will testify of their nightly witness against them. The sun and the moon will testify their moment-by-moment -moment vigil against them. The birds will testify of their intricate love songs against them. The flowers will testify of their artistic persuasion against them. Everything, everything that these people may have ignored or taken for granted in their ignorance will testify against them at their trial. Because he is the heir of all things and he is the maker of the worlds. I like 1 John 1, 3 says, All things were made by him, that's through him again, and without him was not anything, not one single thing made that was made. Not one single thing made that was made. Who is Jesus? Well, thirdly, he's the brightness of his glory. He's light, we know that. God is light and him is no darkness at all. We're children of light. All that is really lasting, wholesome, pure, satisfying is of God. If you want to see good, look to Jesus. If you want to see beauty, look to Jesus. If you want to see love, look to Jesus. Because he's the epitome of good and light. He's the effulgence of the glory or of God's glory. Number four, he's the express image of his person. There's a Cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons deny the deity of Christ. Try to make him a created being. In fact, they say he's actually the uh, brother of the devil. And so, uh, you know, the devil, his brother went bad and he, he stayed good. They just make this stuff up. But that would make him way less than the Bible makes him. The Bible makes him way more, as you're seeing right here, way more than that. Who is this? He's expressed image of his person. The, the word express image means an impress of his essence. John 14, 9 says it this way in Jesus' own words. To Philip, when Philip said, show us the Father, Jesus said, have I been so long time with you, and yet thou hast not known me? Philip, he that has seen me has seen the Father. How sayest thou, then, show us the Father? I want to see the Father. You've seen Jesus. You see the Father. He's the exact impress. He's the exact impress. He's the express image of his person. Number five, who is Jesus? He's upholding all things by the word of his power. Number five, 
He's maintaining and sustaining the realm of existence. He is the bond of the universe. He's the force that keeps the atom together. Number six, who is Jesus? He is the one who purged our sins. I'll never get over it. You won't ever get over it. That your sin's been really washed away. You'll never get over it. Here or there. You'll eternally be grateful. Why me? That I could know him and be saved and have my sins forgiven. Who is Jesus? Who finally sits down on the right hand of the majesty on high. When anywhere in history that I've looked at this, it's a sign of acceptance. When you can sit down in the midst of uh, royalty, it's a sign of acceptance. He sits down on the right hand throne as a son of God, as a uniquely born son of God. He's not the same as he was before he incarnated. He'll always now be the incarnated son of God. He was willing to pay that price for you and for me, whatever that price really consists of. I'm not sure what it is, but I know it is. He sat down. I, I read you a quote from D.L. Moody. Most of you know him. A great many people are trying to make peace, but that has already done, been done. God has not left it for us to do. All we have to do is to enter into it. The price for your sin and my sin been already paid for. When he said it is finished, it was the it was the contract is complete. The justice of God is satisfied. Sin has been justly, honestly paid for by death in Genesis chapter three. That said, when you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And death was entered in. The first sin brought death in, and and that sin has been killing people from that point on. And Jesus Christ paid the adequate, honest payment for every sin that was ever committed or ever would be committed on this old planet. What a shame to miss it. What a shame to miss it. And not trust Him as your personal Savior. Trust in Him. Ask Him to save you if you've never done it. Ask Him to be your Savior. Lord Jesus, I believe You're, <laughs> you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. I believe You came, You you were crucified, you were buried, the third day you rose again. It's the gospel. You died for my sins. Help me. Save me. Some people cry, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Some, some cry, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. I don't think there's a pat answer for it. I think it's the attitude of the heart. Repentance and faith are an attitude of the heart. They're not a work. They're an attitude of the heart. And we're not saved by works because it insults the work that God did. Amen. It, it's idiotic to think that you can somehow be saved by the good works because that means that you have to add something to the sacrifice that Jesus gave for us. And you don't have to add anything to it. You don't have, and I don't have the power to add anything to it. You can't add anything to the sacrifice of God. He already gave it. Now you just got to receive it. Many has received him to them gave me power to become the children of God. Sons of God, even to them believe in his name. You believe tonight? You watching? 
you the folks watching by live feed or whatever it goes out, or you believe? You trust in it? I hope so. Father, be merciful to me, a sinner. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I want, to, I want him to be my Savior. Father, help us tonight to know who is this. Who is this? Yea, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Flesh and blood have not revealed this. He told Peter, flesh and blood have not revealed this to you. The Holy Spirit of God reveals that. The world thinks it's foolishness. The Spirit of God makes it true. Help us, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you would like to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ, you may contact us at the church website, gospelbaptistchurch.com, or you can go to Facebook and type in Gospel Baptist Church Bonita Springs, Florida. Also, you could call the church office at 239-947-1285. Thank you, and God bless.